Hello and welcome to Positive Policy. Uh, I'm your host, Nathan Kessler, and I am joined here with my partner in crime and muse, Melanie Barrett. Hello. And uh, this is going to be my first episode of my first podcast, so uh, bear with me and enjoy the show. So heading into 2023, one of the first things I want to talk about is the economy. Uh, I know that some of us are concerned about it, some of us not so concerned, but either way, it's something that's on pretty much everybody's radar. So um, I figure what better place to start than with inflation. It's been an issue for a little over a year now, um, but it looks like we might be starting to you know, see some relief from it. Looking at the December Consumer Price Index, one of the measures of inflation uh, at the consumer level, it came in at 6.5%, which was down from 7.1% over the year in November. This was in line with economists' forecasts, uh, not above, not below, just directly in line with them. Um, can you explain more in depth what a CPI is and what it means for the average person? Yeah, I'd be delighted to. So the Consumer Price Index is a measure of the price of a basket of goods that the typical consumer purchases. Uh, this is measured Did you by... Say basket? Yeah, a basket of goods. Can you explain what's in the basket? Like some um, bananas? Some I mean, apples? I mean, any number of things that an average consumer would buy in a given month. So yeah, okay. I mean, you're looking right. at you're looking at food staples, you're looking at uh, energy, things like that. So, um, well, great. Now you made me lose my place, but that's totally fine. We can get back to it. So, looking at over the month, <laughs> prices declined in this basket of goods by 0.1 percent. So. We love to see prices coming down. Uh, moving on to core CPI, that is the consumer price index with the volatile food and energy prices stripped out. The reason economists like to do that is because food and energy prices, they're you know particularly unstable. Um, external factors have a lot to do with them. Uh, see the war in Ukraine um, for food and energy prices. Um, and, you know, just any number of uh, other supply or demand shocks can really impact those prices. So it's good to take those out and get a look at the economy without those. So then what is in the measurement then, if it's not food and energy? like what's? Well, you're going to be looking at stuff like uh, housing, medical care, child care, um, just other, other things throughout the economy. Um, and so that's like the big difference with those, and it's... Like I said, it's it's super it's super helpful to get a measure of those things because um, a lot of times the food and energy can just have a, an outweighed effect on consumer prices. So uh, with that coming in at five point seven percent in December, which is down from six percent in November, it does appear that the Fed policy of uh, hiking interest rates is um, you know having some positive effects um, by negatively affecting consumer prices. So since you're an economist yourself, what do you think, what's your forecast for maybe in the next couple months? Um, you know, that's typically reserved for economists that are just slightly more educated than myself. Um, but I do anticipate that uh, consumer prices are going to continue to come down. I think that Fed policy is going to uh, prove to be effective. Um, but in some areas, it's going to be a little more challenging than others. So if we look at like the cost of services, which would include home prices, this was up 0.4% over the month. 
Um, and that's because home prices and other things can be a little more sticky than other um, inflationary aspects. And why, what do you mean by sticky? So by sticky, I mean that the prices don't tend to move as much. Um, like let's take home, home prices, for example. Uh, sellers are pretty reluctant to move on prices unless their hand gets forced by some sort of uh, really big shock like a you know just a demand glut or an oversupply uh, and that it's just looking like there's just no chance that they're going to get the prices that they want it's just you know pretty much sellers don't want to lose money i hear that so um it's going to be really important for prices like that to come down before um the fed is able to pivot to a more dovish stance um, another thing that kind of um, ties into this is real hourly earnings rose 0.4% in December. And the Federal Reserve is going to be watching this closely as higher wages can prop up inflation. And uh, that's because demand stays strong when people's wages are higher. Um, the unemployment claims data also kind of muddied the water a little bit uh, when it comes to Fed policy. So initial and continuing claims, uh, unemployment claims, were both revised down. So what this, what this means is that not as many people are filing for unemployment as initially thought. So shows that the job market is still kind of tight, um, still a pretty, pretty high demand for labor. People are able to find jobs pretty easily. Why uh, was it thought to be different? I mean, did revisions just happen? Okay. I mean, you know, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people, um, potentially, so... You know, it's not always going to be spot on the first time. That's true. You know what I mean? So uh, just general general error in, you know, nothing to, nothing to be too concerned about. Revisions are normal. Uh, so kind of going along with this, uh, the December jobs report was, you know, really strong. It showed continued strength in the jobs market as well with 223,000 jobs added in December. Um, you know, this... Again, it's something the Fed's going to be paying pretty close attention to uh, because a strong labor market is going to continue to prop up demand, um, which, of course, can uh, keep in prices sort of elevated. Um, and so as long as this remains the case, I would expect the Fed to um, continue to hike interest rates. I know that we're all expecting uh, about a quarter point hike um, in February, um, but also interest rates can stay higher for longer. And I mean, I'm not expecting them to cut interest rates until, you know, early 2024, probably at the earliest, because the worst thing you can do is stop fighting inflation too early. Uh, now looking at a sector though, where the jobs market isn't so strong, um, and that's the, uh, tech sector. Where coming out of last year and coming into this year, a number of companies are looking to do uh, mass layoffs. So uh, one example of this is uh, late in 2022, Meta announced they'd be laying off 10,000 employees. Um, and the reason they're doing this is because the tech sector is one is a high growth sector that relies on debt in a lot of instances to. Uh, you know, uh, fund that, that level of growth. And as interest rates go up, it becomes more expensive to service that debt. So, you know, these companies, they 
cut their marketing budgets, they lay off employees, um, and just look for other ways that they can save money. So we've got Meta laying off 10,000. Amazon announced earlier this year they're going to lay off 18,000. And then Salesforce just recently announced they're going to lay off 10% of their workforce. So, I mean, this is a space that, you know, I'm going to continue to watch and that I think everybody else is. Uh, the tech sector has become increasingly important in um, the modern economy. So uh, definitely something to keep our eye on. Something that was a little more interesting um, was the fact that Goldman Sachs, a massive investment bank, has announced that they're going to be laying off up to 3,400 employees. Now, this is in, in the financial sector, which, um, you know, obviously there's a great level of importance there. Right. Uh, but what struck me even more interesting here is that Goldman Sachs has been decidedly more bullish on the economy than some of the other big banks, such as uh, J.P. Morgan's CEO, Jamie Dimon. So, you know... If they're bullish on the U.S. economy but still looking to lay off up to 3,400 people, you know, could that indicate um, stormy waters ahead? Definitely something to keep an eye on. Okay, so with with all of that data uh, considered, I gotta say, you know, personally, I'm I'm an optimist, um, so I'm I'm definitely bullish on the economy and on our chances of avoiding a recession. You know, that's not to say that there is not that underlying risk. You know, I could definitely see it happening. Um, But I think even if we were to enter a recession, you know, I think we're probably looking at a mild one, something pretty short-lived, not too deep. So, I mean, you know, that's my take. You know, take that for what it's worth. Um, But I'm just not seeing too much real underlying weakness. I guess my one big concern is that consumer debt is a little bit higher than I would like to see, um, but wages have continu- have risen. Real wages have not been quite as upward in their trajectory. But you know, this last month we did see an increase in real wages. Um, so I think you know, as long as the job market can stay somewhat strong um, and wages can stay somewhat elevated, we've got a real chance of avoiding a recession. Um, I think that Jay Powell, while he was kind of really fucking late to the to the party as far as trying to get inflation under control, I think he's done a lot of things right since then. Um, he's been very clear in um, you know keeping investors and the public aware of what he's planning to do, and I think you know that clarity is is really really a boon in such uncertain times. Now, an area where I'm decidedly less bullish is uh, U.S. politics, honestly. Um, And I think, you know, really I need to look no further than the Speaker of the House election that is typically a boring and mundane procedural vote in which the majority party just puts a speaker up and uh, gets to work for the American people. But... That was not the case this time. Indeed, we saw 15 ballots to elect Speaker Kevin McCarthy after the GOP had, like, two months to get this figured out. Um, And, you know, they just were 
unable to get that one single singular thing done without some big dysfunction. And I think, you know, this is problematic because uh, Speaker McCarthy had to make a lot of deals with a lot of crazy people from like the House Freedom Caucus and people like uh, Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert. And, you know, um, what's even worse is we really don't know what deals were cut. Uh, we know for a fact that they're going to get more power in committees. We know for a fact that he is probably made some sort of uh, deals on the debt ceiling, um, one of which would be like this uh, balanced budget that they're trying to push. And while a balanced budget sounds really good, it almost certainly will involve spending cuts um, mm -hmm. to Social Security and Medicare, which is widely unpopular. And so I think that this, I think that this uh, speaker election foreshadows a lot more dysfunction, and one of my big concerns is actually the debt ceiling, which, you know, we're slated to reach um, sort of a breaking point there by the end of the summer, or at least that's what we thought anyway, but uh, today, actually, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said that we're going to reach the debt limit on January 19th. So, you know, that's, that's not but six days away, and uh, while the Treasury has some um, tools at its disposal for staving that off. She said that we wouldn't really need to worry too much until at least June. I think Congress is going to have a hard time reaching um, reaching a deal on that debt ceiling just because of the dysfunction in the House of Representatives. And if they're unable to reach a deal on that debt ceiling, you know, the U.S. could be looking at its first ever default on you know our liabilities, and that could ripple throughout the global economy and really cause some you know serious issues throughout throughout the entire global economy and we we want to avoid that if at all possible uh, i suspect that that we will avoid such a default but you know it's it's worrying nonetheless when the majority party can't so much as decide on who's going to lead it now looking at when they did decide who was going to lead them, it was actually, conveniently, the anniversary of the January 6th attack on the Capitol. And I think, you know, you know, we're two years removed from that, and, you know, maybe some people are wondering, you know, is this something that's still relevant today? And, you know, I think, hell yeah, it is. You know, if we look at Brazil just, uh, you know, over that weekend, several supporters— well, I say several, several hundred, uh, in fact, over a thousand supporters of former President Jair Bolsonaro stormed the government buildings in Brazil, actually. Uh, former President Bolsonaro has been claiming voter fraud or election fraud, uh, saying that he didn't, in fact, lose the election and that there's an illegitimate government in place. Where have you heard all this before? Well, I, I think we all know where we've heard this before from former President Donald Trump. So I do think that those sort of uh, almost like fascist tendencies are still very much alive. And so I do think that this is something that we need to be aware of. You know, um, the January 6th committee had wrapped, has wrapped up its, uh, his, it, its efforts 
especially now you know that we've got a new Congress. Of course, that committee is not going to keep going. So this is something that was a big deal in U.S. history. It will be in history books, and it is something we need to be on the lookout for. You know, violent overthrow of legitimately elected governments is not something that we can tolerate. And so I think, you know, even two years removed from that, you know, it's something that we need to keep in our keep in mind, uh, you know, moving forward, because, you know, it's just one of those things that I'm still concerned about and that I think other people still have, you know, concern concerns about. You know, we've seen uh, violent rhetoric coming from certain factions throughout the United States, and I think that is an ongoing threat. And now something else that I feel compelled to uh, talk about when it comes to the new Congress, specifically the House of Representatives, is the new representative from New York, George Santos, if that is his real name. Fact of the matter is, we know nothing about this guy. You know, he claimed to have went to Baruch College and uh, I believe New York University, when in fact he never attended a college. He claimed to work for Goldman Sachs and I think Citigroup, when in fact he did not. Um, you know, one of my personal favorites is that he said that his grandmother was like a Jewish Holocaust survivor. And when confronted about this, he said, no, 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 no. I didn't say I was Jewish. I said I was Jewish. <laughs> okay, whatever that means. And I mean, you know, there, there's all sorts of other just weird things about this guy. You know, supposedly he was at one point, unable to pay his rent, but then all of a sudden he can loan his campaign like, you know, a million dollars. So, like, where does this money come from? Who is this guy? I think really the only thing we know about him for sure is that he is wanted in Brazil for check fraud. So, the man called George Santos, representative from the District of New York, which covers Long Island, wanted man in South America, and freshmen in the House of Representatives of the United States of America, ladies and gentlemen. So the last thing that I feel, you know, that I, I just need to address um, in political news uh, from the beginning of this year is the Biden document situation. So, you know, this is getting a lot of coverage already, and it's going to get a lot of coverage moving forward. Um, you know, that's, you know, not, not without reason, of course, you know, I, I can, I can understand why people are interested in this. So what happened was, in case you're not up to speed, is that a team of attorneys for the now president was cleaning out, um, an old office of his that he used prior to becoming the president and found about 10 documents, uh, classified documents that were mixed in among some other documents that weren't classified. Um, and they were immediately returned to the National Archives and Records Administration. You know, the proper authorities were notified. And the Department of Justice opened an investigation, um, you know, using a Trump-appointed attorney to avoid any sort of conflict of interest. And, you know, that, that was that, or so we thought. What happens next is that more documents are found in his garage at his home in Delaware. Okay, this is starting to, uh, you know, look a little weird. You know, many people are starting to uh, draw comparisons to the Donald Trump documents case and saying, see, look, you know, it, it basically turns into a big sort of whataboutism. But there really are some 
notable differences in these two cases. Uh, you know, first, it comes down to, you know, quantity, intent, and then just actions since. You know what I mean? So, looking at the quantity of documents uh, found in Joe Biden's possession, well, in offices of his and, you know, whatnot, it's less than 20 total uh, as compared to 325 found in the possession of Donald Trump. Okay, that's fine also. Uh, let's, let's say that, you know, that there's, there's no difference there. That's fine. Next, we have to go to intent. And when it comes to intent, you know, at least for now, it appears that the Biden documents were inadvertently, uh, you know, misplaced among these other documents that, you know, were just fine to have. Whereas boxes and boxes of documents, including nuclear information regarding another country, those don't just get accidentally stuffed into, you know, your your handwritten memo folder. So one really, you know, damning aspect there that shows kind of the difference of intent is that some of the documents in the Trump case um, were actually never supposed to be taken out of a, a skiff or a sensitive compartmentalized information facility. I mean, these are documents that are kept under lock, key, and security. So, you know, how they got out of the skiff, I mean, you got to have some intent there. So, you know, that's definitely, um, definitely something that needs to be taken into account. Now let's consider the actions, you know, in the aftermath, right, of the discovery of these documents. In the Biden case, documents found, returned, full cooperation. Great. In the Trump case, he was asked for the documents back, he was asked for the documents back, he was asked for the documents back, and then he was subpoenaed for the documents back, and then we, the FBI had to go get a search warrant from a federal judge to take the documents back. So, I mean, just like, you know, there's that huge obstruction element that really is the bigger issue. You know, it's not even so much that the documents were had. If he had the documents and then had just given them back, you know, it would have been a two or three day story tops, most likely. But, you know, with the obstruction and then the, the, the truthing on his social media site, it, it became this whole big thing that is now a criminal investigation. And, you know, that that's not to say that you know, it, it's it's not a problem that Joe Biden had classified documents. Um, but it is to say that there's, like, a much bigger issue when it's 300 documents that, you know, there was almost this refusal to give back and then, you know, just fighting tooth and nail uh, every step of the way. So while both cases do need to be investigated, you know, I think the investigations are vastly different, you know, um, at least in in my opinion, and, uh, you know, probably in the eyes of the law as well. You know, cooperation usually begets you better results. But, of course, you know, this all uh, this all waits to be seen. Um, you know, I, for one, am happy that uh, Merrick Garland has chosen to appoint a special counsel to investigate this because I do think that all elected officials need to be held accountable, uh, regardless of party. You know, I mean, yeah, I'm a bleeding-heart liberal, but... Um, 
that doesn't mean that I want there to be classified information just out running around no matter whose hands they're in. So, you know, that's just that's just my two cents on that. Um, but honestly, you know, I, I do think that it provides an opening for the GOP to undermine the case against Trump, um, despite the stark differences that I've mentioned before. Um, because, you know, Democrats tend to be their own worst enemy all the time. And, you know, there's the moral high ground on a case like this. And then all of a sudden there isn't the moral high ground. It's like, oh, great, you went and fucked that one away, didn't you? All right, well, ultimately, I don't know that it's going to matter much for, uh, you know, say the 2024 election. I think, you know, that's a big question mark in everybody's brain right now. But given, you know, how rapidly the news cycle moves and the short attention span of the average voter and, frankly, the vanilla flavor of the Biden documents case, I think the only people who are going to be thinking about this into 2024 is the dysfunctional uh, GOP House majority. So I guess, you know, that's all wait. We'll just wait to see. You know, I think regardless of the outcome of, uh, you know, these two investigations, um, one thing that is certain for the next two years is that, you know, the partisan politics are going to ensure a bunch of fighting, nonsense investigations, and lack of legislation on the issues that matter most to, you know, um, all of us average Americans. So, yeah, that's real nice. Um, we'll see what happens in 2024. Uh, I, for one, hope that, uh, you know, that election brings a little bit of uh, stability to the policymaking in Washington, D.C. <clears throat> Moving into um, some other news that I found really interesting, though admittedly devastating, Um I'm going to talk about like the, the climate crisis a little bit and some of the uh, impacts of that. I was reading this article the other day um, about the Great Salt Lake in Utah, and these uh, researchers were saying that it could be gone in the next five years as drought continues to plague the American West, and especially the American Southwest. Uh, I mean, th- th- this would be just devastating, um, you know, not only... <clears throat> on a humanitarian scale as a result of a loss of uh, water source, but also on an economic scale as the estimated impact to the Utah economy is approximately $1.5 billion. That's a massive uh, financial impact on top of the loss of biodiversity, uh, water source, recreation. I mean, this is an important part of the state of Utah, you know, I mean, when people think about the state, I think, uh, largely a lot of, you know, people think about Salt Lake City, and, um, might just be city in the next five years, um, unless something pretty dramatic changes. I think, uh, one of the suggestions that the, uh, researchers in the article made was taking advantage of the runoff from this year's, uh, big snow. So, Hopefully they figured this out because, you know, I mean, that's a massive, massive loss to the state of Utah and to the United States should it, in fact, dry up. On the opposite end of this spectrum, though not really, uh, over the last couple of weeks, atmospheric rivers have been dumping 400% to 600% the amount of rain that the state of California typically sees this time of year. This is a state that's been plagued by drought 
and wildfires over the last four years, and it's just absolutely devastated uh, communities in Northern California with, um, I think, upwards of 20 people uh, confirmed dead at this time. And it's just made so much worse by the fact that they have been stuck in a drought and they have been stuck in this uh, cycle of wildfires because it makes the area so much more prone to these flash floods that are just devastating these communities. Um, so we really, you know, we hate we hate to see the impacts of, uh, you know, the extreme weather caused by climate change. And it's, you know, it's going to take an even larger humanitarian toll, an even larger economic toll, um, for as long as it goes um, unaddressed. So I would encourage you, you know, to look into this, find out what you can do. Um, you know, we here at uh, Positive Policy are all about helping our helping our communities, helping, you know, the world as much as we can. So, you know, I would just like to take this opportunity to encourage anybody that's listening to go check out the American Red Cross uh, or several GoFundMes that are set up to help out uh, these communities in California, figure out ways that you can be a part of the recovery efforts, and, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, they can get get back to a sense of normalcy here in the near future. Um, Last I heard, they still had some more rain coming, but nothing compared to what they've been dealing with for the past couple of weeks, so... Best wishes to everybody that's uh, dealing with that situation right now, and I would just you know wish you the best in rebuilding, and I hope that anybody who's listening that's out there is doing okay at this time. So I think the reports both out of Utah and out of California, and you know um, many other instances as we've seen um, you know throughout last year. Uh, like with the hurricanes in Florida and the wildfires in the West, and of course the um, nor'easters and the massive blizzards in like Buffalo, New York, and in the Northeast. I think you know we see the weather getting more extreme, and I think you know it's incumbent upon us to do what we can to you know reduce our carbon footprint and uh, you know do our part to help to stave off the worst impacts of climate change. And I mean, I know that, you know, for any sort of strategic change, it's going to happen, have to happen at the national and international level. Uh, But I think, you know, it's important for each of us to do the part we can both to help our climate and to help our, you know, uh, fellow people who are suffering from some of these uh, impacts that we're seeing already at this time. So do your part help out where you can and uh you know let's hope that we can make some real change here in the future now in you know uh to end on a good note because i i i do want to do that you know as part of this podcast because you know it it, we see so much negativity so much darkness so much uh, bad news you know in the news cycle and i think it's really important that we also acknowledge some of the good news and I know this is a story that's been pretty big already but you know I would just like to uh you know talk about DeMar Hamlin of the Buffalo Bills for those of you who don't know uh, DeMar Hamlin suffered a cardiac arrest on the field last Monday in the Bills game against the Cincinnati Bengals he was hospitalized for over a week 
Um, but he has since been released, and doctors say he is on an accelerated road to recovery. This is incredible news. Um, you know, we love to see these stories that have a happy ending. And not only is uh, Damar Hamlin on the road to a rapid recovery, while he was in the hospital, a charity that he is a big supporter of raised over $8 million, I think I was seeing today. Um, so I don't know if that includes just when he was hospitalized or in the time since he's been out of the hospital. But either way, that's an incredible, it's incredibly generous of um, those that contributed. And, you know, I hope that uh, he sees a continued recovery and is able to get back out on the field. It's just really nice to see, uh, you know, a story with, with a with a good ending um, to it because I know it was probably really scary there for a little bit for everybody involved. So hoping to see a, you know, quick and full recovery for DeMar Hamlin and best of luck to all the teams in the playoffs. I know I, for one, am looking forward to watching the playoffs. I always mean to watch the regular season, but it just never really happens for me. So really looking forward to the postseason action, and I'm sure I'll be talking about it on here over the next couple of weeks. And that is it for the first episode of Positive Policy. For those of you who stuck around the whole time, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. I promise to get better as I do this a little more. Um... I hope you enjoyed the content, though, uh, and I wish you all the best. Um, gonna try to post weekly, so you know, check back in for updates. There's a lot of news comes at us quickly, so want to try to stay on top of that as much as possible. Everybody have a great week and stay positive. <laughs>